The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, thank you, Aaron. Hope you uh, noticed the uh, obvious accent on trials and tribulations in those songs. That's what we're going to be dealing with in our text this week and at least next week and maybe beyond that. I have to tell you that I have been saying for weeks now that as we studied the first four chapters of Romans, that there was a tsunami of practical application that was coming. And I certainly anticipated that. I certainly knew that was coming, but nowhere did I, um, even in remote, my remote imagination, understand the depth of what was going to happen when Paul turned the key in chapter 5. After four chapters of talking about justification by faith, what awaits the believer because of that great doctrine, that great truth in his life, and how it prepares us for what's to come. Take your Bibles then and turn to Romans chapter 5. I've entitled today, Finding Hope in a Sea of Difficulty, and please notice that this is part one. We have no hope of finishing the passage before us. Uh, This is going to be part one. We'll have at least part two, and maybe beyond that. This is something that Paul is going to begin addressing now, and it's going to climax, as you know, in the end of chapter 8, where we know the great verse, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, quickly followed up uh, uh, by the, the great statement, what shall separate us, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He gives a list of things that could possibly do that, and he says, nothing can do that. Passage before us, though, is remarkable in its context. Let's read the first five verses to put it in its proper context. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's what he's been discussing for four chapters, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at that in some detail a few weeks ago. Through whom, because of Christ, we have obtained our Introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The grace we have of a peace with God is what holds us and is also what leads and guides us in our living. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And we studied that word exult. It's a different word than the word exalt. There's a letter difference, an A versus a U. Exalt means to lift up, to praise. Exalt means to find joy in. It's an effusive, emotive, overwhelming, overflowing response. Some people are that way about an athletic team. Others about someone that they care about, a hobby that they have. Find any engaged couple and watch them walk into walls in love with this exaltation in this gift of the relationship that God has given them. That's the idea. We deeply rejoice. It overflows out of us. And we would understand that in this context. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. We have great reason to have effusive, emotive, overflowing emotional response to the fact that God has saved us and will bring us to heaven. Now we come to our passage. And when you turn to verse 3 and what comes after the word and, you can hear the spiritual gnaws, claws, fingernails 
sliding down the spiritual chalkboard. Listen to what he says. We exult in the hope of glory. That's understandable, isn't it? Can you believe this? And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Did you hear the chalkboard? What? You mean my excitement over going to heaven should be paralleled by my excitement going through a trial? Really, Paul? Knowing. Do you underline things in your Bible? Do you circle things in your Bible? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Last week, we paused in our study of Romans to look at uh, asking questions, getting ready for a new year. It was the first or the last Sunday of last year and really got us ready for the first week of this year. And we borrowed some of J.C. Ryle's questions from his great sermon, Are You Ready? Which really put into context, are you ready to look at all that could possibly happen in the coming year? Good things and bad. And he put a decided accent on understanding that bad things are going to happen. And do we have a theology that's sustainable, that can bear the weight of these challenges? Much of that readiness had to do with preparing for difficulties. So, in God's providence, it's very interesting that the very next passage that we consider in our study of Romans has to do with understanding troubles and difficulties and suffering in our lives. You look at verse 3, and it says clearly, tribulations. We exult in tribulations. The ESV, the NIV, both call the same word sufferings. The Greek word is uh, thlipsis. It's a very interesting word. It means to be put under pressure. Very interestingly, it was used of olives that were under a very heavy olive press that would, that would lay uh, con- uh, concentric weights upon a very wide surface area, and it would squeeze the olives down very slowly and very deliberately and let the olive oil flow out of the sides into a container that would catch them. Also, the same word was used of the process of squeezing grapes to extract the juice, which in that day was to put them into a giant tub and to walk around on them. It's to extract the juice out of an olive or extract the juice out of a grape. That's the word here for suffering, for tribulation, this flipsis, this pressurized condition that the Lord puts on us because of difficulties and trials. It brings up really what I think is the most misunderstood truth in the Christian faith. And unfortunately, it's one of the most misunderstood truths that people propagate in evangelism. Here's the myth. It's all too easily believed, all too easily proclaimed, and it's this. Becoming a Christian means that life is going to get easier and the troubles and difficulties of your life will go away and diminish when you give your life to Christ. Ever heard that? Ever thought that? I've heard people say that. The idea has been sold, pun intended, by the prosperity teachers who for decades have taught and preached that the more faith you have, the more good you get, 
and the less trouble you experience. Is that true? Does the scripture bear out that truth? The question we have to ask about that myth is this. Does this passage say that? Does this passage say justification by faith, you believe in the gospel, you've, been, you've given your life to Christ, great, now life's going to get better. You've exalted in the hope of heaven, exalted in the fact that God is going to exempt you from all the troubles of your life. Don't you wish it said that? Instead, he says, we exalt in the hope of heaven, and not only this, we also exalt in our tribulations. We deeply, emotionally, Respond with a sense of inner peace and joy because of the bad things that happen to us. Now, if you're like me, you think, well, gulp, deep swallow. I I want to do that. I've seen shades of doing that, but it's not always the consistent habit of my life. Well, Paul's going to teach us how to get there. History of the church has not borne out the fact that the... If you come to Christ, then you, you have all your problems go away. Ask the martyrs if their faith exempted them from troubles and suffering. Ask the men who wrote the New Testament if they were given a pass from trouble. If that's really what they taught, that the greater faith you have and the, the deeper your devotion to Christ is, then the less trouble you'll have. How did that work out for the men who wrote the New Testament? All of whom died because of the gospel. Better yet, ask the men and the women at the end of Hebrews 11, you can just listen, Hebrews eleven thirty-five and following, women receive back their dead by, by faith, speaking of those who, who have expressed faith in Christ. And he goes back to the Old Testament. Others were tortured, not accepting release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mocking, scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. That's the legend of Isaiah that he was sawn in two with a handsaw because of his preaching the glory of God. Others were put to death by the sword. They were, went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. I love, I love this passage. This little footnote in verse 38. Men of whom the world was what? Not worthy. Wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made, that they would not be made perfect. And what he's saying is this world wasn't the place where they were rewarded. God doesn't work on a bartering system. Give me your faith, I give you a great life. In fact... It's very possible that the first spiritual law is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's very possible that the first spiritual law is God loves you and if you give your life to him, your life's going to get worse. You say, well, what's, what's, what's good about that? How is that good news? How is that the gospel? Well, Paul is going to explain that to us. Why do we have these troubles? Why do we have these tribulations? Well, 
in the context here, the first reason is that we, we have them because of our faith. Primarily here, these sufferings and tribulations come from living out the gospel. Living out the gospel provokes people. Living out the gospel and obeying Christ makes people uncomfortable. It causes persecution. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not might, will be persecuted. That's the primary focus of this passage. Also, because we, we can't or we don't respond like the world, that causes trouble. We don't get to use the same words that the world does when we smash our thumb with a hammer, right? Because of our sin, because of our sin-infected, broken world. That's why we have tribulation. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I know, John, you taught the the book of Ecclesiastes for about a year. I taught that to a group of Ecclesians for about a year. And the overwhelming refrain over and over and over is, life is not fair. We live in a broken world. We have a world that we place way too high expectations on, thinking it will give us what we want when the Lord always, always, always gives us what we need. Sometimes we experience great things and joy and fun, and, and we should enjoy those things. But D.A. Carson's famous line, all you have to do is live long enough as a believer and you will suffer. So Paul then turns in logical sequence after looking at this for four chapters of um, of dissecting, unpacking the, the glory of the doctrine of justification by faith, and now says, so what? In fact, he says, this is such good news, you may be tempted to think that it's just going to be great the rest of your life. But he says, we exult in the hope of heaven, the result of justification by faith, and now we also exult in tribulations. So what I want to do is lay this passage out. We'll only get through the first point and a half or so today. Let's look at three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. Three Christian distinctives in difficult circumstances. The first is in the first part of verse 3. Growth in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. Growth in a counterintuitive response to our difficulties. Verse 3. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Again, that first part of verse 2 reaches back, uh, verse 3 reaches back into verse 2. There's two exaltations there. We exult, we exult. First, we exult in our hope of glory. Now, we exult in the experience of our tribulations. Is it possible? Is it possible to exalt, to have that overwhelming, emotional, joyful response to tribulations like we would the thought that we're going to go to heaven? Is that possible? As we said, exalt, interesting Greek word, means the attitude of confidence in God, Rejoicing and overflowing, glorying in, boasting in, boasting in. She used other places in the New Testament to brag about. 
Are you willing, have you ever bragged about and boasted about the fact that God has allowed you to engage in tribulations and difficulties? Look at what God's doing with me. Look at what God's doing for me. Look at what I'm learning about God in this. I mean, I just want to look at this verse and say, look, I'm not making this up. It sounds too fantastical to be true. We exult in our tribulations. You will only do that if you know what those tribulations will produce. Paul builds that bridge between the two concepts of exulting in heaven and exulting in our tribulation between those, the last phrase of verse 2 and the first phrase of verse 3. How in the world can he say, be joyfully responsive to tribulations, sufferings, difficulties? Well, remember that James told the suffering believers in the diaspora, remember they were being scattered and shattered all over Asia Minor, all from Jerusalem around the Greek world, the Roman world, because of their faith. And James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various, various multicolored, different dimensions, all sorts of attacks called trials. Consider it all joy. Same idea as exalt in. Incredibly, this word, do you know a little bit of English? I wish I didn't know the English this well. The word for tribulation there is plural. See that? Don't you wish it was singular and there was one trial you had and you were done? It's, it's plural. There's a lot of them. And they keep coming. James's word is also plural. When you encounter various trials, plural. Incredibly, Paul says that our response to having peace with God through Christ should elicit the same response to our tribulations. But he's saying you can't have the second without the first. You can't be happy about trials unless you know the gospel. You, you can't be happy because you don't know that God is doing something behind the curtain, behind the scenes, on our souls, in our lives. As we said, this is counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what the world's reflex to suffering is. In the last three weeks, I know many of you have been over to the hospital when our friend uh, uh, Caleb Nichols was laying there in intensive care. If you don't know, if you're visiting with us, maybe he was a 19-year-old involved in a rollover collision, severe and serious uh, brain damage, um, unresponsive. To be in that waiting room and to see Christians respond to having a loved one down the hall in the intensive care is so starkly different than watching those who cycled through. They were usually on there for a day or two. We were there with the Nichols for three weeks to see people come and go. The response was entirely different, noticeably different. The hospital staff noticed it was different. What made it different? What is different about it? We know something about trials that the world doesn't know because the world doesn't experience. Make no mistake, a Christian's right response to troubles, to sufferings, to persecutions, to difficulties, will get the attention of the world around us. I mean, think about it. We don't grieve as the world grieves, do we? Look, both my parents, I believe, knew the Lord before they died. I cried, I wept, I sobbed, I grieved, but it wasn't as the world does. We don't suffer loss as the world suffers loss. 
lose a job, get bypassed by a promotion, have a flood, something happens. We don't do that loss as the world does its losses. We don't lose as the world loses. We don't endure hardship as the world endures hardship. We don't bury our loved ones as the world buries their loved ones. We don't get sick and we don't die like the world gets sick and like the world dies. We have a settled joy in difficulties. We have a settled joy in sufferings. And the question is, do you have that settled confidence, that settled hope, that settled peace? It's promised in verse 1. I mean, what are you really afraid of? All of us have fears. Can any one of those fears really threaten what we really own that's really important? The answer is no. You can't have that settled confidence, though, unless you know the gospel, unless you believe the gospel, unless Jesus is your Savior and Lord. None of the rest of what we're going to talk about today will make sense. And I have to tell you this, it's not for you. You have no hope to understand difficulty and joy unless you have the hope of knowing that your soul is eternally kept by God in heaven. This can only come, though, because of the next phrase. It's, it's just not enough to say, you should have joy no matter what. Paul didn't say that. Secondly, the first distinctive in a, of a Christian in difficult circumstances is growth and a counterintuitive response to difficulties. Remember, it's growth, not final assurance. Secondly, awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. We will not finish this point this morning. This is, this, is, this is it. This is what gives us perspective. This is what gives us the joy and the confidence and the surety. Awareness of the invisible processes behind our difficulties. Are you aware that God is doing, what's the number? 10 million things in every one thing. That everything in this world is interconnected with his providence and his sovereignty. There are no accidents. And it all comes down to one word. As I said, do you circle it? Do you underline it? Whatever you do in your Bible, this is the word you should do it to in Romans 5. It's the word knowing. Knowing. Look, how, look at the, the gentle grace of Paul and, and of the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. We exult in our tribulations knowing. We can only do this because there's something that we know. Now, let me read ahead. We won't get to what we know in this passage today. Tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, perseverance proven character, proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint. We know that. But before we see what we know, we need to know that we know something. Remember, James said the same thing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What's the next word? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What do we know that makes us as believers so different in our responses to difficulties than unbelievers who experience some of the same difficulties? We know something they don't know. But get this, what we know is something they don't have as well. 
God is doing something behind our difficulties, something behind our persecution, something behind our circumstances, something behind our difficulties. Now, before we get into Paul's specific reasons, as we'll do next week, in that little cycle that he says, I want us to, to, to pause and, and jump back for a minute. I, I told you all along, when we get to chapter 5, we're going to have to take a lot of rabbit trails to see the theological power that's in some of these simple statements. This is all in one word, knowing. Let me say it this way. Your entire peace of mind as a Christian is built on what you know. Said another way, it's built on what you believe. One of the things that's difficult when you're trying to counsel someone in a difficulty, trying to counsel someone in a suffering, in a circumstance, someone laying dying of cancer, someone who has a loved one in intensive care, someone who's received bad news, one of the most difficult things, I think we, we kind of miss something when we say one of the most difficult things is to trust God. I get that. But I think before we can get there, we have to go back one step. I think the most difficult thing is to believe God. So that's kind of the same as trust. Well, no, believe has to do with what we know. I've told you over and over, you're going to hear it again next week and the following week. You're going to hear it in Romans 8, over and over, that my own personal attack on my own soul when I'm dealing with difficulties, did it yesterday. So go back. Three questions. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I? What's the last one? No. Or said another way, what do I believe? What do I know? What do I believe? I want to unpack that a little bit before we get into the nuances of what Paul is saying. It's, it's kind of the theology of that word knowing. Knowing. Do we believe that knowing something actually changes how we experience something? When trouble finds us, the first question then is, what do I feel? Shattered feelings are the soul's reflex to tragedy. And shattered feelings are not sinful. I'll never forget when, uh, when our youngest son, Mark, uh, was uh, three weeks after we brought him home from the hospital, uh, we saw some redness and some infection around his uh, umbilicus site, took him into the hospital, and the doctor took one look at it and basically rushed him to... Uh, the hospital said he needs to be treated immediately. He had a staph infection that was about to go systemic. As you know, that umbilicus is connected to everything in, your, in, in an infant's body. And so they put him on heavy-duty antibiotics. I mean, he had IVs in his head and his feet and his arms. And this was our three-week-old little baby. Um, it was actually over, over the Y2K uh, holiday, which everyone was saying the world's going to end. We were saying we just don't want our baby to end. I remember... Driving home one night, really late at night, you had to gown up and put masks on. We had to hold him through this little incubation kind of uh, insulation, rather, uh, chamber. And um, I remember just crying out to God in absolute desperation. And I want to tell you, my theology was the same as it is today. I think I, I knew all the right things, but my feelings were absolutely shattered. I, we, were, we were hour to hour with whether we were going to lose them. That response of the soul isn't bad. It's an expression of love. But if we stay in what we feel and never get to what we think and what we know, 
there's no hope. Identifying your feeling is a first step in genuinely approaching a godly response. Do I feel angry? Do I feel fearful, threatened, sad, abandoned, alone, defensive, combative, embarrassed, jealous, mistreated, etc.? These are normal initial questions to consider. It's remarkable that, rather, how often uh, these feelings have a way of identifying and isolating our hearts from truth. Second question, that's how I feel. What do I think? Oh, uh, I got this tribulation, I got this trial. What do I think about this thing? Well, typically what we think is controlled by what we feel. It's where our theology is tested. Our thinking is like a, a lifeboat with two possible rudders, feelings or beliefs. Remember, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I think? What do I think? That's where we live. So our thinking is either controlled by how we feel or it's controlled by what we know. How we think is where we make decisions. Emotions that spring from bad circumstances are always, almost always, self-centered, self-protective, self-interested, and that's not necessarily wrong. God designed us with these emotions that function protectively, but emotions rarely factor in theological beliefs, do they? They rarely consider theology. While feelings are hardwired into our thinking, theology is not. Theology is hard to come by. It takes effort to force and press your theology into your experience, into my experience of difficulty. Which leads us to that issue. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Or said another way, what do I believe when trouble comes, what do I believe? Realities known to be true by faith can easily evaporate into doubt when the heat of emotion is applied, can't they? Don't you find yourself, I know that, but. I believe that, but. I think the word but is the most threatening word in our theological construct. But. What do you believe? Do you believe that God is doing something in this trial? Said another way, or do you believe that God is absent? God has gone on vacation and left me alone. He's somewhere working overseas, but he's not working with me right now. Confidence in theological realities is the only sure anchor in the tempest of a trial. And truth can alter the course of our thinking and calm that storm but what truth? What truth can make us think differently and believe differently? Most of our emotional responses to the problem of evil or pain or suffering or temptation or trial fall into two general categories. Okay, can we be really practical? Most of our bad responses fall into two general categories. Bad response number one, fear. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Bad response number two, anger. I'm mad about what's happened. I'm mad about what's happening. Both of these responses are directly tied to, get this, theological doubt. And their solutions are grounded in theological certainty. Fear has to do with loss. Anger has to do with trust. Whenever there's a great fear of loss, a threat of loss rather, 
Fearful anxiety grips the heart. We fear the loss of anything that we believe will bring us happiness. I will not be happy unless I have this, so I'm afraid of its absence. Is there anything? Is there anything that has that much power besides God? Jim Elliot, what do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? It's a great question. What do you have that money can't buy and death can't take away? We fear loss of anything that we believe will bring us happiness, comfort, pleasure is a problem. Loving, losing a loved one, losing our health, losing our money, our possessions, our security, our job, our control, things like these can cause feelings of fear that actually become the root and feed all sorts of other anxieties. All these fears can be traced to a theological absence, the absence, absence of confidence that God is sufficient and has and will give us all things pertaining to life and godliness, which Peter says he will. Now, we don't have time to go there right now, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, Paul talks about this. We'll, we'll get there eventually. He describes the kind of reasoning that should accompany, accompany every trouble. His reference point, though, is Christ. He doesn't say, how do I deal with this problem? He actually says what we're talking about here. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Said another way, we have a relationship with Christ. And what happens is we let anxieties and troubles and fears and angers get in between us and Christ. And we wonder why we're troubled. All these bad things, including tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, natural power, supernatural powers, the past, the future, even death, have no power to, what does Paul say, separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? If you believe that, how would that really factor into your sense of loss? Do you? Listen, we'll get there eventually, but let's preview. Do you believe, do you really believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ? And do you believe that the love of God in Christ is what brings you lasting and temporal satisfaction? Every problem is a theological problem. Every decision is a theological decision. Paul pits these evils against separation from God's love expressed in the gospel. All of these evils then are fear-inducing threats, but none is as threatening as being forsaken by God. And if that's sewn up and that's secure, what can possibly come against us? We're just saying, if our God is for us, who cares what's against us, right? Comforting perspective is difficultly gained by gospel reorientation. Paul asserts for us, if God and his son died for us and he's for us, then who can be against us? You know what the great challenge theologically is, though, is in the middle of a difficulty, 
is to actually change the theological equation and actually begin saying, I wonder if God is against me. I wonder if God's doing something suspicious up there in heaven with me in my life. Gospel reorientation about this word, simple word, knowing, is all about the ability to compare. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, great word, compared, 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 to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18 will say when we get there. The apostle compares the worst possible threats to the horror of being separated from God and his argument is pretty compelling. It says, nothing can take away our great treasure, which is Christ, than every and any other loss is manageable. Do you believe that? Do you really honestly believe that? That's part of the, the word knowing. We have to know something. One of my favorite Quotes. We've talked about this before, that books don't change your life. Sentences do, sometimes paragraphs. I read a book by Horatius Bonner. I, I, we've discussed this before, and I promise you, I promise you this quote will come back for us again. Horatius Bonner, the great Scottish Puritan, said this, Man's dislike, think about this, I'll say it a couple times. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty, that God is in control of everything and rules and oversees everything, man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Wow, that's it. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Then he adds this. We are not always comfortable with the idea of being entirely at the disposal of God. We're not comfortable with it, but are you ready to say that you are? Are we not entirely at the disposal of God and His providence and His sovereignty? Do we really, have we really put ourselves on the throne of our lives where we believe that we can control our driving, our health, our, our roots we take to places so that we can miss any problem, miss any trouble. To be angry about the events of life is not just to mistrust God, it's to disbelieve God. How can we be suspicious of his heart when we remember his love for us in the gospel. God remembers us. Why don't we remember him? I mean, let's ask a question. Do you believe in God's omniscience? Do you believe in God's omnipresence, that he knows everything and that he is everywhere at the same time? Do you really believe that? I, I do. But sometimes in the moment of trial, do we question that? I, I do. A.W. Tozer's great line, you know it very well. He says, in the moment of sin, every Christian is a practical atheist. Meaning we may say we believe in God, but we're acting like we don't. Has God, believer, 
those of you who believe Christ, has God ever for one nanosecond left you alone? One nanosecond. Has he ever looked away, looked back at you and said, whoops, didn't see that coming. Wish I'd been there then. I would have prevented that. Oh, let me say it the other way. Everything that has come into your life, every difficulty that has landed on your doorstep and in your heart, every one of those was, are you ready for this? Entirely preventable by God, but he didn't prevent it. You believe that? Will you believe that? We know this passage. Hold your finger there and turn back over to Lamentations. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. It's a passage that's an anchor passage for me over and over. I I keep coming back to this. When difficulty happens, a few things were more difficult historically than this. The Jews had been... um, uh, warned by Jeremiah. That's what the book of Jeremiah is over and over and over. If you don't repent, um, then Nebuchadnezzar is going to go across the Pearl Crescent, drop down, and he's going to attack you, and he's going to take you prisoner. Please repent, or, or God's going to judge you through the Babylonians. Please repent, or God is coming. They didn't repent. And God came and wiped out the city of Jerusalem, decimated the temple, tore it down. Remember the book of Haggai is them rebuilding the temple? Put it just in the foundations. And everyone had a reason to say, where is God? Then Jeremiah, in the middle part of this third poem, the the book is five poems, in the middle part, in chapter 3, asks three questions. Verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. He's asking, is God in control over people? The answer is yes. God is sovereign over people, over the difficulties that come because of people. Who can speak? The Babylonians spoke. The Babylonians said, we're going to come and wipe you out. They came and wiped them out. It looked like God had abandoned his people. And Jeremiah says, who can do that unless God has commanded it? Are you willing to believe that those people who bring you difficulty are God? God's agents in your life for your good and his glory? That's what this is saying. God is sovereign over people. He goes on. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Your translation may say that good and evil go forth. It's talking about calamity. This is the same word used in Job chapter 2. Uh, Shall we accept good from God and not ill, not evil, not calamity? This is God in circumstances. God is sovereign over people in the first question. God is sovereign over circumstances in the second question. There is no circumstance that God says whoops to. He is sovereign over every circumstance. Now, you might be saying, well, then does he cause evil? No, He does this mysteriously without ever being the agent or author of evil, but using evil for our good and for his glory. There's a third question. Why should any living mortal or any man offer up complaint due to people or due to circumstances in view of what? Our sins. Now we're back to Romans. This is the gospel. And remember, these are three questions that are not questions. All husbands understand this. Your wife asks you a question that's not a question, it's a statement. 
Are you going to wear that tie with that shirt? That's not a question. That's a statement. Go change the tie. Are you going to take out the trash? That's not a question, kids. It's a statement. Jeremiah asks these questions, and they're all statements about the fact that God is sovereign over people, God is sovereign over circumstances, and thirdly, God is serious about our response. Now, here's what's great. We haven't got beyond the word knowing yet. We know that there's stuff that God's doing for us and in us as a result of our trials, right? Remember our friend Abraham in Romans 4? God says, go kill your son, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac. Go, go, go offer him as a sacrifice. Remember Job? Satan comes, takes away his kids, his livelihood, takes away everything. The happiness of his marriage gives him boils and sores. Abraham and Job had no idea that God was doing all this behind their, their scenes. You, you and I know that God is doing this behind the scenes. It is such a grace that we have that word knowing. We exult in our tribulations knowing. What a grace that we can interpret and understand and trace the slender finger of God, as Spurgeon calls it, of his providence in every trial or circumstances. I don't know about you. Actually, I probably do. Because now it's about me. When, when th- bad things happen, don't you find yourself saying, what? Why? Why? Well, next week we're going to look at exactly why. Can I give you a head start? Knowing that these tribulations bring long-suffering and perseverance. That long-suffering and perseverance changes our character, it proves our character. And that proven character gives us hope, and hope does not disappoint. Do you see the circle? Tribulation brings us back to hope, and now we have hope in the tribulation, and we know exactly why this is happening. God's doing something to make us more like his son, and none of you and no one in history has ever suffered like he did That's just the beginning of this passage. Next week, we're going to come back and look more intimately into that process and probably a third week in the theology behind that process. But are you glad God said for four chapters, the gospel, the gospel, he'll save you. Isn't that great? You're going to heaven. And then at the end, you'll say, great, then life's great. He says, actually, it might not go so great. But that's okay. I'm going to tell you how and why the not-so-great things are in your life, what God's doing in them. Father, we have just scratched the surface, just one word in this, this phrase, the word knowing. Teach us what we need to know. You know how we feel. You know how we think. Help both of those to be controlled by what we believe, what we know. We know that you're in our circumstances. You're in the people who we're dealing with. You're 
You're in every cancer cell in the universe. You're in every tragedy. You're not a God who abandons his people. In all of these tragedies, in all of these circumstances, Father, help us to lose grip on this world where our hope will never be fulfilled. So teach us that which we are to know so that we can exalt in our tribulations. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer room is going to be open. Uh, the Oaks will be over here. I'd love to talk to you, pray with you. If there's a burden that we can share with you, if you're having a trial, we'd love to be able to talk to you about that. Thanks for coming this morning on this very snowy day. Tonight, uh, we're going to talk about the power of memory as taught through us in Deuteronomy. This is so perfectly timed with what we're studying this morning. What we remember and what we know about God impacts what we do now. And if we forget it, spiritual amnesia, that's bad news. Israel had that propensity. He corrects it in the passage we're looking at tonight. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Father, dismiss us now with thoughts of you and your omniscience and your greatness and your omnipresence and the fact that you will never leave us or forsake us if we have placed our trust in you who have died for our sins and rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.